All right, Grace Community Church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9. Jake's going to get that. He's the man. Matthew chapter 9. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. If you do not have a study guide, look around you in an empty chair, and it would be really helpful for you to grab one. we got some things to work through in this passage this morning. And let's pause before we read God's Word together, and let's ask for the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. Please pray with me. Father, your word tells us that you have called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, Lord, to declare your praise, God, to declare your glory. God, thank you so much for the gathered church. God, you reveal your glory to us as we sing your praise. And God, we want to declare it today that you are a glorious king. You are a glorious king. You are everything to us, God. God, you have poured out your mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. And we have nowhere else to go. We don't want to go anywhere else but your presence. You are our God. You are our Father in heaven. You are our glorious King. God, your love overwhelms us. That we belong to you, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us today. That you would strengthen your church. God, we ask you this morning that you would send out your truth, that you would send out your light, that you would send out your word. God, build us up in our faith, we pray. Strengthen us through the preaching of your word. Lord, you are so faithful to do that. God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for how they reveal you to us, God, and your ways. And so we ask for your help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please turn to Matthew chapter 9. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do this morning, I want us to all read this passage together. And as we read it, I want you to, to, to start thinking through what's going on here. And this is God's word to us this morning. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into, into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now this is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. 
And one of the things that I want to point out to us, even before we begin uh, to unpack this passage together, is church, we get to see Jesus Christ and all of his perfections in this passage. In other words, we get to zone in on the perfections of Jesus in all kinds of situations in the Gospels. And in this passage, Jesus' glory is revealed as he's in conflict as he's in conflict, and, and, and let's just say that and know that as we dig into this passage together, that Jesus is perfect in conflict. There's never been anyone who was perfect in conflict like Jesus. It's like he's doing everything at the same time. He's protecting his disciples. He's confronting his enemies. He's warning. He's calling people to respond. He's speaking the truth in love. And this is our Lord Jesus in conflict with the accepted religious practices of his day. Now, if we're reading through Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has just publicly feasted in the house of Matthew. That's what happened last week in the previous passage. And the Pharisees were deeply suspicious about Jesus Christ being so close to sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees are a group that we run into over and over again as we read the Gospels. They're a Jewish sect. They've been around for about 200 years by the time Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And their name means separated ones. That's what they are. That's how Israel views these men, the zealous ones the separated ones. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus in conflict with these Pharisees, mainly over the traditions that these men have imposed upon the law of God. Mark 7, 7 says that they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we see Jesus in conflict over and over with these men throughout the Gospels. Now, in the previous passage, these men wanted to be totally separate from sinners. And again, this was not because they were obeying the Old Testament. It's because they had all this tradition that they had piled up around God's law. And they wanted to be totally separate from sinners. They didn't want to help them at all. They didn't want any contact with sinners. They just wanted to condemn them and condemn them straight to hell and move on with their separated life. And so in that previous passage, Jesus rebuked these men. He rebuked them. He called them merciless. He indicted them for self-righteousness because their pharisaical tradition had caused them to disobey the law of God. They didn't love their neighbor like themselves. And so Jesus tells these men, go learn what this means. You know all about your tradition, but go learn what the Old Testament means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus tells them that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In our passage this morning, we enter into another conflict, and it's very similar, this time regarding the discipline of fasting, the spiritual discipline of fasting. And we see that in verse 14. This group comes up and asks Jesus, why do, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What is fasting? 
I'll just throw out a quick definition here. Fasting is denying the body food for the purpose of devotion to God. This happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Denying the body food for the purpose of devotion to God. Now, not all fasting is spiritual. I mean, you know, and, and most of us know that. I mean, we have fasting all around us for all kinds of different purposes. You can fast for political purposes. You know, you go on a hunger strike until somebody hears your thing, that your, you know, your, your issue. You can fast for health reasons, and that's, you know, really popular in our day. Not all fasting is spiritual. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount indicts the fasting of the Pharisees as it's not spiritual at all. They're just seeking the praise of men. Other religions fast to false gods. So not all fasting is spiritual. But true fasting is a way to express and to seek a hunger for God. I'll say that again. True fasting is a way to express a hunger for God and a way to seek a hunger for God. In other words, it's if you're hungering for God, you're longing for God, one way to express that, according to Scripture, is to set aside food and express that longing for God. It's also a way to seek hunger for God if you feel too satisfied with the things of this world. It's a way to come to God and, and ask God for help. Ask God to be satisfied in God alone. It's an act of self-denial. It's not the only way that Christians deny themselves. But it is an act of self-denial that temporarily forsakes the good gift of food and focuses the attention of the body and soul to the greater gift of God Himself. The good gift of food is set aside and all the focus is upon the giver of that gift, God himself. Fasting is not the only act of self-denial. There are other acts of self-denial, but we are really guilty of too quickly broadening out that word fasting to mean setting aside all kind of stuff. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word means that you set aside food and you seek God. That's what it means. That's what fasting means. Now, in order for us to understand the magnitude of this conflict that's happening in this passage, and it is a big deal, it shows up in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in order for us to understand the gravity of this conflict, we need to understand a little bit about how important fasting was in this culture, this first century Palestinian culture, and how important fasting was in this setting. The Old Testament commanded one fast every year in Israel. That was the only thing that, that was commanded as far as fasting goes. What was required of the nation of Israel and all of its citizens was one day that was set aside, and it was the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 Israel was commanded to afflict themselves. That's the language of Old Testament fasting. They're afflicting their souls. Other words that are you know, used to describe fasting in the Old Testament are sorrow or grief or affliction. This passage compares fasting to mourning. 
It's the only thing that was required. Later in Jewish history, another national fast was added as a temporary memorial in Israel. And you find this fast in Zechariah 8. While Israel was in exile, they fasted and mourned and grieved the destruction of the temple and that they were, you know, pulled into exile outside of the land. God gave them these good gifts. They disobeyed God and God judged them and they're in exile. And we're told that four times every year while they're in exile for 70 years, Israel mourned their exile. Zechariah 8 verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. So this is God's promise that God sees all this fasting. God prophesies that he's going to turn this exile into a restoration, that he's going to turn this fast into a cheerful feast. So that's what the law required. And we have many other voluntary fasts in the Old Testament of individual men. David fasted, Moses fasted, Ezra fasted for many different reasons. They were voluntary. They were not, you know, uh, compelled. But the controversy that Jesus is being presented with here is not related to Old Testament fasting. It's not related to prescribe what was prescribed in the Old Testament. This controversy is about fasting that is connected with Jewish Pharisaical tradition. And we, we can see this in Luke chapter 18. The Bible tells us that the Pharisees had a practice of fasting twice every week. And that was one of their you know, badges that they were really proud of. We fast twice a week. There's an early Christian document called the Didache. And we learn from that document that the days that the Pharisees fasted every week were Tuesdays and Thursdays. Every Tuesday and every Thursday they set aside food and they entered into the spiritual discipline of fasting. This was a well-known practice of zealous Jews in this culture and it was not a peripheral issue. In other words, that this wasn't this thing that was happening off to the side that wasn't very important. It was considered one of three foundation stones of Jewish piety. The three stones were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And if you were paying attention, you were, you, you know, you can look back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus Christ teaches his disciples about the spiritual disciplines. Which ones does he mention? You got it. When you give, when you pray, and when you fast. It's a big deal in this culture. Now, evidently, both groups, the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, had been trained to keep these regular public fasting days. And I say regular and public because that group that comes to Jesus is able to see, hey, one group is doing this stuff and the other group is not. Uh, uh, disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but the disciples of Jesus are not. In other words, it was evident 
that the disciples of Jesus were not joining in with this fasting tradition. And so the general thrust of this question that is brought to Jesus Christ sounds something like this. If your disciples are serious about piety and seeking God, why are they not fasting? So you understand the question. There are these, you know, accepted cultural norms and they're wondering, Jesus, why are you not doing this stuff? And Jesus answers their question in verse 15 in the form of another question in verse 15. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It's like, wait a second, we're talking about fasting. Why are you talking about a wedding, Jesus? And the answer to this question, the obvious answer to this question is no, the wedding guests cannot mourn at a wedding. Ancient Near Eastern weddings in this culture, they're not like our weddings. We go to a wedding and it might last an hour. You might go to the reception, another two hours. So, you know, three hours, you're, you're there and you're done. Ancient Near Eastern weddings were several-day affairs. They lasted multiple days, even up to a week, and they were essentially feasts for the family and the friends and the loved ones. They were invited not to dine one day, but several days to celebrate this newly married couple. In fact, in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus does in John's Gospel was he turns water into wine at a wedding feast. Ancient Near Eastern wedding. And so the one thing that it would never be fitting to do in this culture is fast at a feast. To fast at a wedding. You would never do that. And it's so obvious that you would never do that. But Jesus is saying something more than you shouldn't fast at a wedding. In other words, we should ask ourselves, why, Jesus, why are the present circumstances of your disciples in the Gospels, why is that like a wedding feast? How, how does that have anything to do with a wedding? And the answer to that question centers around who do you say that Jesus is? One of the most important questions that you can ever ask or answer is who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? The Old Testament uses this, this bridegroom imagery to describe Yahweh's relationship to Israel. In other words, one of the ways that the God of Israel is described in relation to Israel is as the bridegroom, as the husband to the people of of God. I'll give you just a couple examples of this. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, God's word says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth. So God is a husband to his people. He is the bridegroom to Israel. And so think about this. They asked Jesus about fasting. Jesus starts talking about a wedding and he starts talking about a bridegroom. And what you need to understand that Jesus is saying is Jesus is definitely saying, I'm the bridegroom to a bunch of Jews 
which the only thing that they would know about the bridegroom imagery is the Old Testament. And this is one of many places all throughout the Gospels where Jesus Christ is alluding to his deity. His deity. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. Old Testament says Yahweh's the bridegroom. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. He is announcing himself to be the bridegroom of Israel. And so his point and his response is, you don't fast in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the, is, is the bridegroom of Israel. He's God incarnate walking around planet earth. It's, it's the last thing that you should ever think about doing is fasting in the presence of Jesus. This illustration in verse 15 It equates the earthly ministry of Jesus to a messianic wedding banquet. Jesus is trying to show them what's happening right now with me and my disciples is like a messianic wedding banquet. And my disciples are the wedding guests. Now, the effectiveness of this response and this illustration is going to depend on whether the hearers of this illustration see Jesus as analogous to the bridegroom of Israel. That's the only way this response is going to be effective. Or to say this another way, if the hearers are not compliant to join the wedding party, it's going to reveal the reason they're not joining the wedding party is because they have rejected the true nature of the person of Jesus. They're blind to who Jesus is. The bridegroom of Israel is right in front of them. They don't know it. They're supposed to be guests at this wedding party, rejoicing in the presence of Jesus, but they're blind to his true nature. And this is true of both groups. The Pharisees, Jesus has already condemned this group as self-righteous. And what that means, a self-righteousness is what what that means, it's a word that we throw around a lot. What that means is that you think you're fine and you don't need Jesus. You think you're just fine. You don't need grace, you don't need forgiveness, you're not poor in spirit, you think you're just fine and you're blind to your true state. No nobody is self-righteous at the end of the day. Only Jesus has a righteousness in and of himself. Self-righteousness is a myth. But these men are self-righteous. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has indicted the scribes and the Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites over and over. And we saw that as we worked through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, parts of Matthew 7. He called them hypocrites. And specifically, Jesus indicted the Pharisees for how they practiced fasting. Jesus says that they only fasted for the praise of men. That's the only reason you're doing this, because of the reputation that it gets you before men. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 16. He says, when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, 
For they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The purpose of fasting is to seek God, but the purpose of Pharisees' fasting is to seek the praise of men, to to be viewed and looked upon as the zealous ones, the religious ones before men. And Jesus says, that's the reward you sought, and that's the reward you got, and that's the only thing you got. You didn't get anything from God the Father. All you got is a reputation before men. It's empty. It's hollow. And so the Pharisees, they, they haven't joined this wedding feast. They're not rejoicing along with the disciples of Jesus because they're self-righteous unbelievers and they don't see, even see their need for Jesus Christ. They don't see their need for cleansing and for grace and forgiveness. They're not the part of that group that Jesus says, blessed, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're bankrupt on the inside, and so they they call out to God for mercy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. So this is the Pharisees, self-righteous unbelievers. But let's think for a moment about the disciples of John. Because they're also in this group that hasn't joined the disciples of Jesus and is rejoicing at this wedding banquet. They are also blind to the glory of Christ. They don't see the true nature of Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us that John came into the world to bear witness about the light. And the Bible makes it very clear. John was not that light. Jesus was the light. John's role was to come and bear witness about that light. And so everything about John's ministry points his disciples away from himself and towards Jesus. He preached the coming one. His role, he was the voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes. In John chapter 1, we are told that several of the disciples of John left John and began to follow Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. That should have been true of all of John's disciples. In other words, when Jesus was publicly revealed to Israel at his baptism... And the Spirit of God rested upon him, and the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then John the prophet says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that moment, every one of the followers of John should have become disciples of Jesus, but they didn't. They didn't. They heard John's message about the coming one, and then the coming one came. He's standing right in front of them, and they don't see him. They don't perceive that this is the Messiah. This group continues on after John's arrest. We see them several more times in the Gospels. They they continue on for several decades after John is martyred. In fact, this is one of the groups in, I think it's Acts 19, decades later. 
there's still a group of disciples of John, and they need the gospel. And and they so this is a, a group that they should have followed Jesus, they didn't follow Jesus, and then they continued on in this uh, following the teachings of John the Baptist, but blind to the identity of Jesus Christ. And so what do these what do both of these groups have in common? They don't have everything in common. The disciples of John have taken that baptism of repentance, and at least publicly, they said, I need help. I want to turn. I want to prepare my life for the coming of Jesus. So they're not exactly the same. But the thing that they have in common is they don't know Jesus Christ as the bridegroom of Israel. Jesus says in verse 15, That this wedding joy that's happening during the earthly ministry of Jesus, that it's not going to last forever. Verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. This is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. It shows us something beautiful about Jesus. That the cross didn't come upon him as a surprise of like, man, oh, man, I didn't know that this was God's will. He knew that it was God's will for him to suffer. He is prophesying that this is not going to last forever. I'm going to be taken away. The wedding joy is going to be abruptly ended by the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. This is... An allusion to Isaiah 53, a messianic song. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says this about the Messiah. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus knew what awaited him. He knew the cross awaited him. He knew that the Messiah must suffer and after three days rise from the dead. Fasting is going to resume after Jesus is taken away. He says, and then they will fast. And we'll come back to that point as we close. Because actually the central point of this passage is not about fasting. Fasting is the flashpoint that introduces us to this bigger controversy. And Jesus illustrates this, the larger issue with two parables In verses 16 and 17, one regarding a cloth and the other regarding a wineskin. Verses 16 and 17, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. So both parables, understand what's going on here, both of those parables give us the general principles why Jesus' disciples are justified in not fasting and not jumping into the traditions of the unbelieving Jews. And so this is the hardest part of our passage and we want to understand it. What do these parables mean? Both parables illustrate an incompatibility with the old and the new. That's what they have in common. Just starting at the top. The old and the new, they cannot go together. They're incompatible. 
You see this with the first parable? You cannot put a new cloth on an old garment. The new cloth has not shrunk yet. The old garment has already shrunk. If you put them together, then when that new cloth shrinks, it's going to tear that old garment. That's the imagery. They don't mix. Same thing with the wine wineskin analogy. The new wine is unfermented wine. That means it hasn't swelled yet. It hasn't expanded yet. Old wineskins have already expanded. They're brittle. They can't stretch anymore. The imagery is if you pour new wine in the old wineskin, it's going to expand and it'll burst the wineskin. They cannot be mixed together, the old and the new. But what does this mean? What does Jesus have in mind? What does Jesus want us to understand? What is the old and what is the new? We'll start with the new. And again, this contrast is broader than fasting, though fasting is included in this parable. The new wine and the new cloth have to represent Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom. That's what's new. That's what's busting on the scene. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The new is Jesus and his glorious gospel. And then we come to the old. And essentially what you have to decide in interpreting this passage is, is this Jesus versus the Old Testament or is this Jesus versus Jewish tradition? And you remember, if, if you've been with us for several months, you remember this is not the first time we've had to ask and answer that question. The Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew 5, is just eat up with that question. When Jesus says, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, is he saying, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, now I'm changing things? Or is Jesus Christ saying, you've heard it said of old, you've heard those who are, who are bringing this tradition down on the word of God, they're externalizing it, these scribes and Pharisees, but I say to you, I'm here to restore the true intent of the law of God. This happens throughout all, all, all throughout the Gospels. Is this Jesus versus the Old Testament, or is this Jesus versus tradition? I take the old here, the old wineskins, and the old garment to represent old, worn out, and useless traditions of unregenerate men. Old, worn out, and useless traditions of unregenerate regenerate men. And I believe the context leans this way, that this is Jesus versus tradition. Let's talk about two reasons why. We've already talked about this. Is, is Jesus being asked, why, when he's asked, why don't your disciples fast? Is he being asked, why don't they fast like Leviticus 16? Why don't they fast like Zechariah 8? And I think the obvious answer is, he's, that, that's not the question. His disciples are being confronted. He's in controversy of why his disciples haven't joined the fast of the Pharisees. Second reason from context that I believe this is Jesus versus tradition is the order of this story. 
In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story appears right after the call of Matthew. Matthew is called to follow Jesus, and then there's a feast in Matthew's house where sinners gather together, and then boom, there's that conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees. Not over commandments of God being broken, but over cultural expectations, over the traditions of these religious men. And Jesus rebukes them. He confronts them for it. Go learn what this means, religious ones. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees in the very previous paragraph from this text. One follow-up bullet point is in the other two Gospels, Mark and Luke, the story immediately after this story in Mark and Luke is a controversy about the Pharisaical tradition and Sabbath breaking. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They pluck a head of grain, and here come the Pharisees. And they charge Jesus and his disciples with breaking the fourth commandment. You have broke the Sabbath. But in reality, Jesus and his disciples didn't break the Sabbath. What they did was they didn't conform to the the tradition of the Pharisees that they had mounded up around the fourth commandment. I think this is Jesus versus religious tradition. And if that's right, then the point of this parable is this. Old Worn out traditions of unregenerate men cannot contain the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worn old out, uh, old and worn out traditions of unregenerate men cannot contain the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus' disciples were to jump in and follow the traditions of the unbelieving Jews, it would would be like mixing the old with the new. And the parable tells us that the results would be disastrous. The the cloth will tear. The wineskin will burst. In other words, to mix the gospel with the traditions of unregenerate men leads to destruction. They don't mix. They don't go together. So I believe that's the meaning of our passage, the general outline, the general thrust of this passage. And so I want us to turn the corner this morning and I want us to begin to ask and I want us to think through how do these truths affect our lives? In other words, how do we respond to God's word this morning? I want to mention three things. Number one, I want us to remember that at the end of the day, After all the nuance, God's Word places every single person in one of two categories. This happens all over the Bible. Light and darkness. Wise, fool. Sheep, goat. Sons of God, sons of the devil. And it really is true. There's two paths, two gates, two destinations, and only two. And this passage is another reminder that at the end of the day, all humanity is busted into two groups, and you could define them this way. Those who know that Jesus is the bridegroom, 
and those who do not know that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Those who know, this is what our brother reminded us of as we started, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the bridegroom of Israel. He is God incarnate. And those who do not know that Jesus is the bridegroom. Those who rejoice in the presence of Jesus because He's God incarnate. Come down to save us from our sins. And those who don't rejoice in the presence of Jesus and don't believe He's God incarnate and don't believe He's come to save us from our sins. In other words, Jesus and His gospel are like expansive new wine that needs a new wineskin. Jesus has come as the King of the kingdom of God and He accomplished eternal salvation with His death and with His resurrection. And this imagery reminds us that because of who He is, It's impossible to add Jesus as though he were some appendage to your life. That you you have this old wineskin, this old garment, and you're just going to sew Jesus as this little appendage to your life. You're just going to add him on like an accessory to your life. And this, this passage, this parable reminds us this is not you don't respond to Jesus by making a little room for him. He comes as Lord of all. He comes as new wine to be poured in a new wineskin. He comes to make your life entirely new. He comes to take over. He comes to to grant the new birth. He comes to make sinners absolutely new. One of the ways that conversion is described in the Bible is the old has passed away and the new has come. It's gone. That's what Jesus does to sinners. The old man gone forever. The new has come forever. Jesus alone can make you new. Jesus alone can baptize with the Spirit. Jesus alone can give the new heart, can give the new spirit. Jesus alone can forgive you of your sins. And so what really matters at the end of the day is that you know Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. That you know Jesus as the Son of God come into this world to save sinners. Truly, this man is the Son of God. It's the most important thing about you. God incarnate sent to save you from your sins. Jesus Christ. And I encourage you this morning that, that the response is to turn to Him with faith. Turn to Him with faith. It's not, man, I'm stirred by these truths about Jesus and I want to add Him as this little piece of my life. You need to call out to Jesus Christ. Make me new. Make me new. Change my life. Raise me from the dead. Give me a new heart, Lord Jesus. He's a gracious King. And we even see this in this passage when the King holds His wedding banquet... It makes sense to us that sinless angels would be there. These sinless ones who never sinned against Jesus the King, that they would be there rejoicing. But Jesus tells us that His friends at the wedding banquet are sinners. The disciples of Jesus, they're not sinless ones. They were enemies and they've been washed in the blood of Jesus and now they're His guests at the wedding banquet. He's the King of grace. 
And his wedding is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so you need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to be awakened to the true identity of Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Behold the bridegroom of Israel, Jesus Christ. That's our first response this morning. Number two. This text would have us to beware of empty religion. In fact, this text would instruct us that empty religion can blind you from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, the very thing that can send you to hell is not only perverted things, but religious things. Like fasting. Like the fasting of the Pharisees. Empty religion, old wineskins, can keep you from coming to Christ. In fact, in Luke's version of this parable, Luke chapter 5, verse 39, the last thing that Luke says in this passage is he tells us that the ones who drink the old wine, they don't want the new wine. And that's a weird thing. Because you would think, man, the new wine is so much better, and it is, but the one who's sipping at the old wine, who's sitting at the table of the world, they don't want the new wine. They don't see their need for Jesus and his glorious gospel. This is a tremendous warning about empty religious ritual, self-righteousness. The Pharisees in this passage, they took so much pride in the fact that they fasted twice a week. They wore it like an external badge that got them favor and praise from men. And yet the sad reality is many of those Pharisees are in hell right now. Right now they are suffering. They fasted twice a week. Maybe some of them for 40 years. What is fasting? Fasting is supposed to be setting aside food and hungering for God. And for 40 years, twice a week, these men entered into this empty religious ritual. And, and many of them are in hell right now. What a warning to us. What a warning to us. Any religious practices that are Christless, that are faithless, that are pursued as their own ends, are soul-destroying. That's a real warning from this passage. God calls us to do many things in His Word. There are many spiritual disciplines, many means of grace. But if we pursue them as ends in themselves, if we pursue them in a Christless way, if we pursue them without faith, those things can be the very things that blind us from knowing and following Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example of this. Praise God we have visitors almost every week at this church. And some of the visitors visit us for weeks and months, you know, at a time. One of the things that can happen in regards to church attendance, and not only coming, you know, on Sundays, but fellowship group attendance, 
One of the things that can happen is that those things are pursued as their own, as, as an end in themselves. I went to church, check. I went to fellowship group, check. And those things are soul-destroying. They're dangerous. Though coming to church is a means, not an end, it's a means for us to draw near to God. For us to rejoice in God, to be satisfied in God. So the question is not so much, did you go to church? But what happened? What happened there? Were you strengthened? Did you get something from God's word? Were you reminded of something glorious about God when you gave God praise? Absolutely dangerous to pursue it as though it were an end in itself. And the danger is this, that just because you came to church, you think, I'm religious, I'm fine. And, and there's also another danger that just because people see you coming to church, they think, he's religious, he's fine. It becomes an external badge, and really any, any spiritual discipline can be like this if you pursue it as an end in itself in a Christless way and in a faithless way, and wear it like an external badge. But if you approach church attendance like that, it will keep you from Jesus. Can you imagine the remorse and the regret on the final day of sitting in church maybe for 40 years and that being the very thing that blinded you from the true nature of Jesus Christ because you didn't see your need for Him. You thought you were fine. The Son of God didn't come to make you a mere church attender, and we can add all kinds of things there, a mere Bible reader, a mere Caleb listener, a mere hospitality practicer, everything, just fill in the blank, a mere scripture memorizer. He came to make you new. Jesus came to change your whole life to make you a new creation, to change you from the inside out. This is why God's Word says you must be born again or you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is not interested in mere church attendance. This is supposed to be a time to come and to draw near to Jesus Christ. So I have a warning here about empty religious practices. Number three, and this is to my brothers and sisters, fast like a Christian. Or we could say it like this, seek your God with fasting. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Seek your God with fasting. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you fast. And it's been pointed out many times, he didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. In our passage this morning, Jesus says, you know, he talked about there's a day coming when, when the bridegroom's going to be taken away. And then verse 15 says, and then they will fast. And so Jesus prophesies that his disciples, Christians, they're going to be fasters. They're going to be those who seek God with fasting. Christians should fast. There are reasons, medical reasons, why some Christians can't fast. And that is certainly, you know, understandable. And by the way, if the medical reason is, well, I can't fast because when I fast, I get angry. 
That don't work. You know, that's, that's, that, that's the whole reason why we need to mortify this stuff. We mean, you know, real medical conditions, you don't need to be fasting. But honestly, be honest, that's very few Christians. That means that most Christians should be seeking our God with fasting. We should be seeking our God with fasting. Christians should fast. And let me say this, the types of fast and the frequency of fasting are a matter of Christian liberty. How about that? Nobody can impose it on you. You just get to follow the Holy Spirit whenever He leads you into fast and to seek your God. How awesome is that? Left it, left it completely wide open. He says Christians will fast. We don't have any of those uh, uh, rigid you know, fasting days, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays. We just get to follow the Holy Spirit and seek our God in fasting. Christians should fast. Christians should fast, but we should not fast like Pharisees. We are the friends of the bridegroom. Christians are those who seek the Father in heaven in the secret place. The Pharisees are the ones who don't know the bridegroom. They're not focused on the bridegroom. And in their fasting, they're focused on the praise of men. And that's our contrast. We don't seek the praise of men in fasting. And this is why Jesus has instructed us to intentionally obscure this spiritual discipline. So you do it before your Father who is in secret and in the secret place. Jesus promises that our Father will reward us. We'll get closeness with Christ. We'll get the joy of knowing that our Father sees us in the secret place. And for Christians, that's enough. For Christians, that's everything to us. Christians should fast, but not like Pharisees. I'll mention several bullet points. These things must be true for fasting to be truly Christian. Okay? Not this pagan fasting, not empty religious fasting. We want to fast like Christians. Okay? Three points. Number one, Christian fasting must acknowledge that food is a good gift from God. Not a necessary evil. Why do you say that? There are many warnings in the New Testament of something called asceticism. And the, the Colossian church is specifically warned in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, about this you know, false teaching that comes into the church that's called harsh treatment of the body. 1 Timothy 4, you know, talks about false doctrine coming into the church and forbidding foods that God has made clean, forbidding marriage. And so there's this way, you know, this rigid self-denial, ascetic understanding of the world that says, man, if you're really zealous, you do all this self-denial stuff and all that creation stuff is just a necessary evil that we have to participate in sometimes. That is, that is false teaching. That's false teaching. True Christianity upholds and acknowledges the goodness of God's creation. The goodness of food. It's not a necessary evil. It's a good gift from a good God. I remember a brother that used to be in this church. He since moved to uh, Memphis. And when we would gather together with, with our family and his, he would give thanks to God at the table. And he would say this almost every time, God, thank you for this food and the flavors in it. 
And think about that. God could have made food taste like nothing. Like nothing. Like, like, like literally nothing. Like water going down. That's how we could take in calories every day. But God didn't do that. There's all kinds of flavors all over the world. And there's all this variety. This is, food is good. God designed it to be this way. And that brother was no ascetic. He gave praise to God for the flavors in the food. Christian fasting has to acknowledge that food is a good gift from God. The normal thing for Christians is to eat, not fast. And it'll take, you know, it won't take you very long if you got that out of order, you know, two or three weeks in, you'll find out what's normative really quick, you know. It's a temporary, voluntary setting aside of the good gift that God gives in order to seek God. Number two, in order for fasting to be Christian, it cannot be an end in itself. So maybe one of the um, things that's so confusing about fasting, if you've never practiced this, is what's the point? You know, what's the point here? In order for fasting to be Christian, it cannot be an end in itself. The goal is to hunger for God. In other words, the goal is not merely to go hungry for a certain period of time. Oh, you know, God's word says that I should fast every once in a while. It's been, you know, a little while. And I'll, you know, skip breakfast, skip lunch, maybe skip dinner. And I'm just hungry for God. Or I'm just hungry. (laughs) The goal is to be more satisfied in God. More satisfied in the giver of food than than the food itself. In other words... It reminds us that we live in a shadow world. All around us, there are shadows that point us to deeper realities. Food gives us nourishment, gives us strength. But at the end of the day, God is the one who gives us nourishment. God is the one who gives us strength. And we live in this shadow world. And the danger is that we become so focused on the shadows that we forget the God who gives us these gifts. Become more satisfied in the gifts... Than in the giver. This is why Jesus announces himself to be the bread of life. You ever meditated on that name for Jesus Christ? He's the one that gives us sustenance. He's the one that gives us life. In other words, we need Jesus 10,000 times more than we need physical bread. He's the real bread, the true bread that came down from heaven. The goal is not to be hungry, but to be more hungry for God. And we said that this can happen in two ways. Fasting can express your hunger for God, and it can be a way that you seek to be more hungry for God. God, I feel too full of things of the world, and I want to seek you with prayer and fasting. Number three, Christian fasting is all about Christ. And really, Christian anything is all about Christ. That's what the word means. Christian blank is all about Jesus. Christian fasting is about Christ. This means that that Christian fasting must be done with faith in Christ. In one sense, we fast as Christians, but in another sense, at the same time, we feast spiritually on Jesus by faith. So it's not just, I'm not eating, 
but I'm feasting in another way for my soul right now. I'm full of faith in the Lord Jesus. I want more of Jesus. It's not that religious, empty, unbelieving fast of the Pharisees. We fast from righteousness, not to be righteous before God. We fast with faith in Jesus Christ. It must be sustained by the power of Christ. This is really important. Colossians chapter 2 warns us about will worship. Think about that phrase. What would it look like for you to worship your will? And you need to make sure you got this right when you think about spiritual disciplines of self-denial. That what's happening here is not just me asserting my will against physical hunger and saying no to hunger and strengthening my will. That's will worship. That's fleshly discipline. Christians fast and they trust in the power of Christ. And isn't it it interesting in Galatians chapter 5, that list of the fruits of the Spirit, that the last one is self-control. You know that the, the Christian virtue of self-control is not, you know, just me and my own strength. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit of God in our life that's creating this discipline, this denying of ourselves. It's not fleshly. It's trusting in Christ to be sustained by His resources, by His power. It also must aim for the glory of Christ. It's so helpful that what do you seek when you pray and fast? And the answer can be all kinds of stuff. You can seek help from God in your marriage. You can seek guidance for your family. You can seek closeness and communion with Jesus Christ. But behind everything, I mean behind everything, what you're seeking more than anything else is God himself. And this is the order of the Lord's Prayer. This is why the first thing that Christians are instructed to pray is Godward. Before we ever pray for our daily bread, we say, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We want God. Christians want God. And so we must aim for the glory of God in our fasting. God, glorify your name. Our God is worthy to be sought with fasting. I hope you believe that. He's so worthy that we would go into the secret place, that we would set aside food and that we would seek his face with no one else looking. He's so worthy of this. And I want to encourage you to go after him, to seek your God with fasting. One of the things that can happen is, you know, disciples of Jesus, they get so discouraged And this is one of those areas, and it happens something like this. of Man, I know that we're supposed to fast. I've seen that in God's Word as I've read the Scriptures. Maybe I've heard some sermons about this, but but I've never done it before. Or I hardly ever do it. And you get so discouraged that the only thing you think about is what you're not doing. But be encouraged this morning. Seek your God with fasting. Follow the Holy Spirit and seek His face with prayer and fasting, periodically abstain from what is good and lawful for the sake of something better, closeness with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated 
by anything. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 and 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after my preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Brothers and sisters, don't let anything, even good things, even lawful things, steal your affections for your God. Seek your God with fasting. Last word here. Fasting is only for this world because soon that bridegroom who was taken away from us has promised to return to us. Fasting only happens here. It's only for this world. There will be no fasting in heaven. Every believer will feast with Jesus Christ in heaven, in the new heaven, for all eternity. We will be gathered to the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the last thing that we will ever think about is is fasting. We're going to feast with Jesus. And He'll be everything to us in the kingdom of God. Fasting is for this world. Not for the next. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You today. And God, we pray that You would use Your Word in our lives and in this church. Lord, we ask that our minds would be instructed. Lord, we pray that you would raise up a group of Bereans that examine the Scriptures every day to see if these things are so. God, please raise them up, Lord, and strengthen us with your Word. God, make us those who seek you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our God.